0: Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeart Radio.
1: And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Gerald Clark is a 1994 graduate of the University of California at San Diego, a Bachelor of Science in Computer Engineering, Master's Degree in Electrical Engineering. His service path included seven years as a helicopter pilot in the Army, as well as ten and a half plus years in the private practice as a structural integrator. Gerald and his wife Krista recently opened a new online structural academy to teach the work to others. Gerald is the author of several books, including, as I mentioned, the Anunnaki of Nibiru, the seventh planet as well, and a screenplay that was turned into a movie and a great design document telling the story of the ancient history with focus on the Sumerian tablets that introduced us to the Anunnaki. And their legendary tales. Gerald, welcome back, my friend.
0: Hi, George. Wow, it's been a while. It's so good to be with you, and a warm welcome to you and all your audience.
1: You too, my friend. What's new with you?
0: Oh, we've been busy, as always. It's one mission to the next. And uh, the last one uh, turned out to be uh, not an online school, but an actual school where we're having people come and stay with us and receive the
1: work that we do. Great. Well, the work is fantastic, to be sure. and It just seems that more and more people, Gerald, are fascinated with our ancient history. How come?
0: Well, I think it's part of the fact that we're in an era where we're supposed to be experiencing universal consciousness, according to the Maya, right? And there's the calendar. Well, that, if that's true, then I think people are now at the place where they're being exposed to some different energies and I think that's the catalyst for them suddenly tuning in to, you know, ascribing meaning to their life. This is probably the most important thing. I learned this from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, long ago. He was a prisoner of war camp uh, participant, and he described how he found freedom in a prison, and a lot of it had to do with what his life meant to him and what he was here for, and I think that's for all of us, in a way, we we have to know why we're here. And to do that, and what we're supposed to be doing, you got to know your path. you got to know how we got to this place, right?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right.
0: So I think that's going on in a big way, and I see it too, George. I think it's
1: happening all over the world. You touch on the Anunnaki quite a bit in your work, Gerald. I'd like to get your thoughts on the late Zachariah Sitchin and some of the things that he did. What do you think?
0: Well, um, It's funny. He he usually always comes up in my conversations. Maybe because uh, I published right around the time uh, when he was uh, on the ascendancy of his career. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I did. I didn't get to meet him actually. I I wish I had. He uh, just as as an academic, me looking in, and I'm I was a very left brain graduate engineer in circuits and systems. Okay, so I kind of had a pretty thick filter, and I, I. started reading um, ancient history, I needed somebody who gave references for everything they were giving, because this stuff was pretty outlandish, you know, it was hard for me to grasp my head around it. So I kind of leaned heavily on academic sources, because I was kind of an academic. I'd been working at the University of California, San Diego, both as a student and as a uh, employee for many, many years, more than nine years as an employee there.
1: So so I I hung
0: around with people like that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And they had pretty thick filters, too. So for some reason, after reading uh, The Twelfth Planet, and I'd read all the stuff prior to that, I had not read um, George Smith's book. I'd heard about it, Mm -hmm. and I hadn't read Hamlet's Mill yet, but I'd heard about them. But at the time, I had read what was available to me, and anything I could get my hands on to do with Sumer, I did. And it, it was everybody, not just... It turns out that Zechariah Sitchin had written so much in the short lifetime that he had, it was kind of incredible actually. Really incredible. And I noted that to uh, to be a member of all the different organizations he was and he was he was in deep. You know, he was in the German organization oh, yeah. for for investigating Seymour. Anyway, so I think um, he was a prolific researcher and writer. Um and he impressed me. Um, was he completely right? No, but no author is. So, you know, and, and to take a, a, an ancient language like that and try to represent it well. Well, this is the story of George Smith. Do you remember who this guy was?
1: No, that one I right.
0: don't. Oh, you like this, George. So I stumbled on this guy's name when I was looking into what um, this ex-military officer, or, Well, no, he was a current military officer attached to Britain. Stationed in Persia, and this is in the 1890s, okay. Um, anyway, he uh, was a hobby archaeologist and climbed up the cliffs of the history there in Persia and uh, got some inscriptions off of this 1700 foot cliff, and it turned out there were three languages there. Do you remember this part? Mm hmm. It's kind of the Rosetta
1: Stone. Yeah. For this is the part. Language.
0: You're right, right. Well, this guy sent uh, one of these little cuneiform tablets back to the British Museum and it was received by somebody who was there who wasn't even considered a linguist, and this guy's name was George Smith, okay? And uh, he worked at the museum, and he had been involved in about 1871. He and a group went to Nineveh and looked at Asher House temple and got a bunch of records way back then. And this guy got this little, he called it, a looked like a dog biscuit, and... uh Started decoding it. He apparently could read this stuff, you know, uh, like this huh. like this guy at the British Museum today who teaches cuneiform. Uh, I think his name's Stinkelstein. Have you seen him online? Anyway, yes. yes. not to get lost in the story. So he started reading this and decoding it, and he shouted out, "There's a flood story here, <laughs> right?" I love it. <laughs> yep. Started making parallels to the Bible, and this caused quite a stir, as you can imagine. And I got his book. Um, the Chaldean Account of Genesis. I highly recommend this book. Um, so he describes going to Nineveh, going to the different places in what we call Iraq today. And they didn't find just tablets, George. They found lots of tablets. but you realize they found lexicons and symbol lookup tables and all the things you need to decode a language? It was all there as well.
1: It, very you know, similar that? to some of the things that Sitchin has talked about.
0: Right, right. Well, all that stuff was there, and George mentions it in his book, The Chaldean Account of Genesis,
1: and this goes, what? He went way <laughs> back before oh, Sitchin. Yeah, it yeah. was
0: 1871. Okay. Yeah. And it was a big, it was a very popular idea, and that book led him to, well, that finding led them to being able to decode cuneiform. And what I noted was the kind of decoding that they were doing in 1871 seems to be very similar to what I find over on the Oxford site. You know, this ET, the, the Oxford cuneiform uh, Language online uh, reference that they have? A lot of people are going to look at that, and they have several, several documents of it you can read. Anyway, um, I noticed that uh, certain vowels were missing or askew in some of their names. And I thought, well, isn't that weird? Well, George mentioned in the in his book about this problem with some of the vowels they were having way back then. <laughs>
1: so, back in the eighteen hundreds, he picked up yeah. on that.
0: So later, uh, you know, they eventually digitized these things. They have you got, you can get the Sumerian cuneiform. Look at live uh, text. It's a, it's what's called a uniform code text. It's a font library that you can download for your computer, okay? Like any font. So you can use that and play around with it and write different stuff. But uh, they've used that and then been using CCD cameras to capture them and then do optical character recognition for a very long time to convert these tablets. And they still apparently have only done about 30,000, and there's
1: still hundreds of thousands more of them. Did Sitchin pick up from this George Wilson's uh, work for his own
0: uh, well George George Smith um was published and I'm I'm quite sure that uh, he had the had access to pretty much everything um I I actually I was I was you know i had been through a PhD program and I was kind of pushed pretty hard in engineering and what he was doing was really hard and I knew that cuz I actually looked at some of the graduate work and from the University of Pennsylvania some of the German students uh, that were writing their PhD thesis on a uh, seriology, they were basically given the job to convert uniform tablets into the language that they wanted, right? That's what they were doing. And I, will, I looked at how hard this was. And, and one of them had only about 15 tablets. And well, it took him, you know, years to, to do this. And, it's, and it's, if you do it by hand, it does take that long. You can actually do it by hand. but uh, Then there's all the interpretation of well, was this supposed to be a glyph, or was this supposed to be a phoneme? Because sometimes they they mix them, right? So they had certain glyphs that would be an entire god's name, for instance, while the other phonemes, where you can take the little individual characters and stitch them together, and then you get a dot in between, like they do. But those those are phonics, so you can pronounce those.
1: Gerald, in your opinion, mm. who were the Anunnaki?
0: Well, I, I thought they were what the Sumerian cuneiform tablets said they were, and they said, and you can, and you can follow this from the Kings list backwards, it's just count how many Sumerian Kings, kings there were, and the time that they had listed they reigned, add it all up, and you can see we're back 400,000 years or so. And so in their record, they said they came about 450,000 years ago to this planet to get resources to facilitate their life elsewhere, and that's that's the short answer, and Essentially, you could say that, that they're, I don't know, gal- a galactic race that is probably from another dimension, and they are in the business of uh, colonizing space like all the other races it seems.
1: So you do believe they existed?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I still believe they still exist as an entire race. How many? As a matter of fact, matter of fact George, try this hat on. If they hybridized in early hominids, Okay, this you know the story,
1: which is possible. That's right.
0: Possibly mix their DNA with an early hominid, and uh, this also seems to be a the MO of a uh, advanced race when they come to a planet and they want resources. If it's empty, it's easy. There's no problem, right? But they still need a workforce, so they might have to create it. They might have brought some lower genetic samples of themselves, chimeras, if you will, or hybrids, to do the work it seems to be what they do <laughs> they always seem to have a mix of themselves,
1: yep. probably
0: for control reasons biological control reasons and so if if a planet is occupied, one of the, and this came from the threat briefing report, by the way, that I did on YouTube the if a planet is occupied with a species, well, oftentimes, the, instead of going to war with it or just wiping it out, they find a way to make it useful, so they'll hybridize that that race to do their bidding, and eventually their hybrids uh, Probably have a survival function that's different than the other ones, and eventually they replace them all. Slowly, but from the inside out, like that. I think that's what's happening to us. And as a matter of fact, if what they said is true, we have become the Anunnaki. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.